You can hear me? Beautiful. Okay, everyone, uh, if you're new with us tonight, I'm Kurt, one of the leaders here. It's a pleasure to have you along tonight. We get the pleasure of sitting under the Word of God tonight. Um, I'm hoping my voice holds out, number one, and I don't shake off the stage. If you see my shakes tonight, you don't know my story. I have Parkinson's, that's why I shake. It's not because I'm scared of you. It's not because I'm nervous. Uh, it's just that, it's just the nature of the beast. So uh, let me pray, and we're going to sit under God's Word together. Father God, we just, we just want to stop now. Busy day, Lord. Mother's Day, so much on for so many of us. And we just want to sit and listen to you now. Dear God, he loves to speak through your word, by your spirit. We want to hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about Peter. Uh, Peter had grown up in the church, gone to youth group, um, but at 12 years old, he got exposed to pornography. And over the next nine years, he kind of descended into this dark well, world of shame and porn addiction. Uh, he finishes school and becomes a car detailer. And as a car detailer, he regularly gets picked on by all his workmates. He gets slammed regularly for being a Christian. They call him homophobic. They hammer him all the time. They call him a churchy. Get churchy. He's still going to church. He's staying hard. He's trying hard, trying to stay pure, but consistently he's failing his addiction to pornography. And so he looks at you one night as you're chatting to him and he just says it's so hard and then he says this, how does Jesus on his throne up there help me down here? How does Jesus on his throne ruling up there help me down here? Let me tell you about Cherie. Cherie's in a relationship with a guy who mistreats her. Um, he didn't at first, he was really nice at first, but eventually he started treating her poorly he didn't physically hit her, but he just is highly emotionally manipulative. And the relationship gets worse and worse. She wants out, but she's concerned that if she moves away from, from this man, that she won't find someone else. And so in order to cope with it, she starts drinking vodka regularly without anyone knowing. And then she gets online and just randoms, has flirtatious relationships with random guys, thinking she might eventually hook up with one of them. She goes to church... And she has a chat to you, and she's really struggling. And she says this, how does Jesus on his throne up there help me down here? How does Jesus on his throne up there help me down here? I wonder, do you ever think that? You're battling sin in the face of suffering to live for Jesus. You honestly just feel alone in the process. You, you feel alone. Feeling, what good is Jesus if he's ruling up there in the heavens if I'm down here struggling right now? Does that really help? Does he really help? If you're new with us tonight, tonight we're looking at a section of the Bible called Hebrews, which is actually a sermon. So it's strange, we're doing a sermon series on a sermon, which is odd, but it's a sermon to Jewish believers, to Hebrews, who are struggling to remain faithful to Jesus. A struggle, on one hand, that's brought on by persecution and trials, you know, stuff, stuff had been stolen from them. But at the same time, it's a struggle to not drift into sin in the midst of it, to not walk away from Jesus. And so the preacher in chapter 1, like we heard Archie last week, kick off with this incredible picture, this incredible truth of who Jesus is. He is God the Son, become revealing God himself to us, that he is the radiance of God's glory. He's greater than the angels. He upholds the universe 
And so this, remember that the writer of Hebrews talked about Psalm 2. He referred to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 to say Jesus as God's son, the ruler of the universe, the ruler of all creation, enthroned as king of the universe. And so we get to the end of what Archie was saying there and it had that, that kind of encouragement to not drift away from that Jesus. He's on the throne. He's ruling. Don't drift away from him. But the preacher knows, the writer of Hebrews knows, that if you're Peter, if you're Cherie, you need more than a reminder of Jesus up there because you're down here and you're struggling. So we need a vision of Jesus that's not just the ruler up there. We need a vision of Jesus that sustains us in the down here, in the, in the mess and the reality and the suffering of our lives. And so that's what we get in Hebrews chapter 2. But first he kind of explains the tension of how our lives are so messy, yet Jesus is ruling above it all. And the way he explains it is this. He says, the rule of God's son is not yet seen. The rule of God's son is not yet seen. So have a look with me at verse 5. Let's get a drink. Be up on the screen. He says this. Now it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So the question is, all right, this world to come, that's when Jesus returned. Who's going to rule over that world? I keep reading verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. So this is a guy who doesn't really know his Bible very well, but anyway. He says it's somewhere in the Bible. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now it's a little tricky section because the question is, who's him? You know when you have a conversation somewhere and you get a bit lost in the conversation and they use the word him, you think, wait a minute, who's him? Who's him here? Well, when it was originally written, so this writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8, that's the part of the Bible it's from, and originally when it was written, it was written by David, we read it before, it was David reflecting on, on back on the creation of Adam before the fall, before sin came into the world, that Adam was made to be God's royal child, um, to, like a prince to rule the world. And yet he says here, at present we don't see everything in subjection to him. See, because what happened back in the beginning was that although Adam was made to be God's royal child to look after his creation... Uh, the prince tried to grab the crown off the king. So imagine it happening last Saturday night, no, two Saturdays ago. If he went to grab, he went to, you know, he did the kiss and all those sorts of things with the crown. Imagine he grabbed the crown and shoved it on his head. <laughs> and he looked around, hey, I'm the king. You know, that's what, we, that's, that, that's what we do to God. We say, God, I want that crown. I want to be God. I'm going to take your crown. I'm going to put it on my head. I'm going to be the king of this world. And so that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And as a consequence, our world is broken. Our world is supposed to live in subjection to us. We're meant to rule over the world. But because we rejected God, it got turned upside down. And now we live in subjection to the creation. We're at the mercy of the creation because we're running around playing it like we're little kings. And so the original Psalm 8 is talking about, was talking about humanity, that we were made to be God's princes, not replace God as king, but the writer of Hebrews recognises that we were never able to do it. The creation was busted, and it, we live in subjection to the creation. And so he uses this passage to say, but there was one who was able to rule creation rightly, and that is Jesus. That although in, some, in uh, Hebrews 1 it says that Jesus is greater than the angels, it says here that he became lower than the angels, that is, he became man, 
but now he reigns at God's right hand, at that right hand of God in, um, in heaven in glory. And he says, everything is under Jesus' rule and control. So Jesus is up on the throne, everything is under his rule and control. But he says, at the end there, he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Jesus is ruling, but we don't see everything in subjection to him. See, Peter and Shuri go to church every week. They've heard a, they've heard a sermon on Hebrews chapter 1. They've heard that Jesus rules, that he is the power, all-powerful ruler of this universe. But they're thinking to themselves, if he is that powerful, then why am I so stuck? Why am I stuck in this relationship? Why am I stuck getting bullied at work? Why am I stuck in my porn addiction? What's the use of him ruling up there if my life is such a mess down there? I wonder, do you ever feel that tension? Do you feel that tension? Jesus, I know you rule, but I can't see it in my life. See, it's the tension of living by faith, of, of, of trusting an unseen reality. But if I can't see Jesus ruling, well, what can we see? The writer tells us what we can see, and it's the thing that's going to enable us to endure down here. Secondly, he says, God's son suffered to create a new family. Verse 9. What do we see? We don't see him ruling right now, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We don't see Jesus on his throne right now. You know, we can't peer through the clouds and see Jesus ruling over it all, and it's all under his control, it's his subjection. But what do we see? We see in the Bible, we see Jesus suffered on the cross for us. See, our rejection to reject God as king, to rip the crown off God and jump it on ourselves, had natural consequences. When you cut yourself off from the God who is life and who gives and sustains life, then it's like walking away from a life support system. What happens? You die. Death comes into the world. A physical death happens to us as human beings, but more importantly, that physical death is a picture of a spiritual death we all, we're all under because we cut ourselves off from the God who is the sustainer of life in this universe. We declare that we are in another kingdom, not his kingdom. But this says Jesus suffered in our place. God the Son became man to suffer in our place, not just to save us, but he says here to make us a part of God's family, to bring us into God's family. So verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's those who follow Jesus, made whole, sanctified means made holy like Jesus, all have one source or come from one family, have one father. So the passage says here it was fitting. All right, so the plan of salvation from Genesis 3 onwards was not God's plan B. It's not like he goes, oh, bummer, they sinned. I'm going to have to come up with another plan. Oh, maybe Jesus, do you reckon you could go down and do something about that? That, that wasn't how it worked. It was part of the Father and Son, their partnership in creating the world, that Jesus one day come and be the author or the pioneer or the, or the, the, the trailblazer, the one who establishes salvation in the world through being uh, made perfect through suffering, not that Jesus was imperfect and then he had to become perfect, not that he came down into the world and he had to try and work off his badness to get to his goodness, but the idea of 
Perfection there is the idea of completeness. He had to come to completely finish the task. And what was the task? Well, God's son had to come down. He had to live a perfect life as a man. He had to suffer and die in our place to, so that his perfect life could be, through trusting him, credited to us, shared with us, united with us that both Jesus and those who trust him might share in having God as our Father. See, one of the consequences, if you go back into Genesis chapter 3, the the sin and the rejection of God to live our lives our own way, one of the consequences of that is that whereas God before was our Father, after the fall, he no longer was our Father, but he became, in, in our minds, we could only see him as judge. You see it in chapter 3. God went from Father, as it, it talks about him walking in the garden of the cool of the day, that we were meant to walk alongside God in this, in this family relationship. But then as God walks into the garden that day after they've rejected him as king, instead of coming to the Father and embracing him and him embracing them, they run from him and hide behind the biggest tree they can find to cover themselves. Why? Because they're scared of him, because of the judge. They're scared of the judge. They're fearful of him. See, as I sit down and pastor the Pete's and Cherie's, as I chat to them about where they're up to and help them encourage them, as I listen to the way they talk about God, the picture they have in their mind, I always find myself asking them, I say, who is the God you can see right now? You're talking about God and what God's doing to you and what he thinks about you. Who is the God in your mind right now? And as they talk, I hear them talking about God as this really angry judge. This really hard-hearted judge who's dismissive with no empathy for their suffering and their sin. He just, he's just harsh. And so as I sit there talking to them, I have to say to them, do you know what? That is not the God of the Bible. <laughs> That's not the God of the Bible. Yes, he is just. Yes, he is holy. But the God of the Bible is the father of the prodigal son story. You know the story where the, where the son asks his father for all his inheritance, all the money he can take for his father. It's almost like saying to his father, you're dead to me. Then he goes off and squanders all that wealth in wild living in prostitutes and alcohol and everything he can get his hands on. But then he comes back to his father after doing all that and instead of his father being this harsh judge, he says, no way you come back home. What does he do? He's a Middle Eastern man. He lifts up his robe, which Middle Eastern men wouldn't have done. He becomes almost shameless. He runs off to his son, he embraces him, he kisses his son and holds a party for him. See, that is the God of the Bible. That is the Father. When that person is in that place of feeling like their their sin is so great, they can see God as judge, but they're missing out on God as Father. He is our Father, and at the cost of his son, he has made a way to embrace us, to make us a part of his family. But not only is God our Father, keep reading verse 11. So Jesus is not ashamed, listen, to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. As a young man, a 12-year-old man, I would go up on holidays, summer holidays up the central coast up to Avoca Beach, North of Oka, actually, and uh, two weeks of surfing 
and approaching women on the beach, young girls on the beach really, or older girls than me. And it was regularly led by my mate's brother, Rich. Rich was a bit of a stud, and uh, he'd approach the girls, they were older than us, and to chat to them. And, and I remember feeling completely awkward. 12-year-old, weedy bloke, walking up with this bigger guy who's 14, 16. And we walk up in front of the girls, and I'd feel slightly embarrassed, thinking, what are we going to do? And you know what Rich would do? He'd put his arm around me and he said, hey, girls, this is my brother, Kurt. And that wasn't my brother at all. He lied completely. What was Rich doing? He, he was taking whatever shame I had, and he was ha- taking the honour he had, and he was sharing with me. He was saying, Kurt is part of my family. What is true of me is true of him. See, it's so much better with Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, you've become a part of the family of God with God as your father and Jesus your brother. And he is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It does not matter. He's not ashamed of you. He stands before God the Father and says, he's with me. He's one of us. He's part of our family. Jesus, the greatest one who was honoured as God the Son from before all time, became a man, and as he hung on the cross, he endured the shame of all of our sin, all the embarrassment, all the feeling of dirtiness before God the Father. He endured it all before his Father so that you and I might be clean, might be shame, without shame, might have his honour, and he might call you his brother. Let me ask you when, you, when you're struggling with sin in the face of suffering, who is the God you see? Who is the God in your mind? Is he the, the, the angry judge who just wants to take you down for doing something naughty again? Or is he the father that embraces you at your worst, who grieves you, with you in your sin, who longs for you to become close to him again through confession? Is he Jesus, the brother who with pride says, you are my family? God's son suffered to create a new family that he might help us in the down here in three ways. Firstly, to set us free from the fear of death. So verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, we remember we talked about chapter 3 of the Bible where the people rejected God as king to become the kings themselves. We're also introduced in chapter 3 to the devil, that is, a rebellious angel of Satan who declares war against God and is trying to enlist in chapter 3 the original humans to be a part of his army against God. And so we know from chapter 3, as we talked about it before, as a consequence of rejecting God, they experience death. Now, it would appear then that Satan is the one who's in control over death, and it sends to say he has the power of death here, but keep going, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So what's the devil's power? The devil's power is not to kill people. It's not death. He doesn't have power over death, but he has the power to keep people enslaved by the fear of death. Okay, it's different. He has the power to keep us enslaved by the fear of death. He's there trying to make us fear death. As I reflected this week, as I chatted to people, I thought through, do I fear death? And I asked people, do you fear death? I mean, it's, unless you go to a funeral, it's really hard to remember that you're going to die one day. A lot of the time you just think you're going to live forever. But the Bible, and even psychology itself, suggests that death anxiety 
is a driver for a whole bunch of dysfunctional behaviours in our world. See, fear of death leads us to greed, doesn't it? Where we try to amass a whole bunch of money, thinking if I get enough money around myself, then I can create my own heaven on earth and death won't be a problem. Fear of death leads us to desire power, trying to get control of anything we can, trying to control everything because we know that in the end we're going to lose control when our life is taken from us. Fear of death leads us to selfish escape, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pleasures because we're trying to hide the fact, we're trying to be numb to the fact that one day we're going to die. So though it might not be conscious, we might not consciously have this death anxiety inside of us, subconsciously this fear of death drives us. If you are someone tonight who hasn't trusted in Jesus, then the Bible suggests that you currently have a, have a sense within you of a fear of death. You might not notice it now, but you will notice occasionally. You know, you'll get sick and you'll think, oh man. Or you'll go to a funeral and you think, oh wow, one day I'm going to die. And most of the time, what do we do? We sit and push it down. We push it along and it push it back. The reality is it pushes us along. And the reason it's a problem is this. It's a fundamental problem. We, when we took the crown off God and said we wanted ourselves, we decided we were going to be the God of this life. But the reality is we're not God. And so death is God's reminder that we're not. It's his big fat wall of reality that says you're not God. You can't control your own life. You're not in charge of this place or anything. But listen to what this passage is saying. Jesus' death destroyed the devil's power to keep people fearful of death. How did he do it? Jesus dies the death we deserve and he rises again three days later, appears to 500 people at once to show that it worked. See, when you trust in Jesus, you don't have to fear death. And as a consequence of that, you don't have to run around with FOMO all the time, thinking, I'm going to miss out, I'm going to miss out, I'm going to miss out. You don't have to pursue power and legacy to think you can try and live forever because you know that trusting in Jesus, you do live forever with him. You can see the vanity of living for pleasure now and compare it to the eternal glory of what we have in Jesus. Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. That's the first way it helps us. Secondly, Jesus sets us free from the fear of judgment. So check out verse 17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a bit wordy there. That word propitiation is a bit scary. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of the first half of the Bible very, very quickly because we're going to talk about it multiple times in the book of Hebrews, like lots. And so religion in the Old Testament. You ha- uh, before Jesus, you have a temple, you have animal sacrifices for sin, and you have a priest. Now, one of them is called the high priest, like the great priest, And his job was then one particular day of the year, he'd go into the special part of the temple called the Holy of Holies, which was the place God dwelled, and he'd bring with him a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, the sacrifice itself, he actually sprinkled the blood on the altar, but the sacrifice was to be understood as a propitiation. That's a silly big word, but what does it mean? It means to turn aside God's anger. So instead of God's anger for sin of the people coming on the people, it was absorbed by the animal, by the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews is saying, uh, all what was happening back then was only a small picture because the blood of animals could never really take away the sin of man. What really needed to happen came later on. That Jesus is a great high priest and not 
only did he come to represent us before God in God's presence, but he becomes a sacrifice himself. He is the he is the he is the, in a sense the animal on the altar offering himself on the cross to take God the Father's anger for all our sin against him, all our rejection of him. Jesus' death took the judgment, took the justice our sin deserved. So, and, what, and when you understand that, you're set free from running away from God as judge. But when we sin, what do we do? We come to him as Father. A Father who embraces, a Father we can confess our sin to, a Father who loves us deeply. Jesus sets us free from the fear of death and judgment. He sets us free from judgment. Finally, Jesus helps us in temptation. So verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right. Now, some of you might remember this, but when you were a teenager, remember when you were a teenager, okay? You have hormones raging in your body. Not all kids are like this. I don't want to say all teens are like this, okay? But some might be. Right. You have hormones ranging through your body. You feel school pressure, feel social pressure. So you feel pressure, stress, 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 stress. And you think to yourself, you look at your parents and you think to yourself, you have no idea what it's like for me. You don't know the pressure I'm under. You don't know what I'm going through. And so you ignore them. You ignore their help. You reject their help because you think they just don't get it. So the Bible wants to suggest that's not just a teenage thing that we can do that with God. When we suffer, when we're going through sin and we drift into sin, it's easy to think, God, you don't get how hard it is for me down here. It's really easy for Sharice to think that. It's really easy for Peter to think that. And so what do we do? We ignore God. We think, you don't understand what it's like for me, so I'm just going to have to do this by myself down here. But this passage says what? It says, whatever suffering you're enduring, it says, whatever sin you're involved in, however much temptation you are struggling with, Jesus gets it. Jesus gets it. Uh, one of the images I've seen of the idea of temptation in the past is the idea of fish hooks. And each fish hook goes in your skin and pulls you in a certain direction, makes the fishing line. It's a bit of a gross picture, isn't it? Trying to gross you out a bit. And imagine fish hooks, every time you're tempted, there's a fish hook in you and it's pushing you, pulling you in the direction of walking away from God. So imagine as Jesus hung on the cross, he had like 10,000 fish hooks in him. As he was tempted to reject God's plan, God the Father's plan, and get off the cross, because he had all the power in the world, he could have. But he stayed on that cross as the fish hooks ripped through his skin, suffering to the point of death to remain obedient to the Father. Jesus gets temptation. He gets what it's like to go through it more than you will ever imagine. And so in your temptation, in your struggle with sin, know he gets it. He can help us. Years ago, I had a mate who uh, finished Bible college and he went across to Spain to work in a drug rehab centre. And one of the things he told me that happened when a first, an addict first arrived at the program, uh, a person would be given to him from the program and that person was called their shadow. And so for the next two weeks of detox, the drug addict and the shadow would be everywhere together, like literally everywhere. They'd go to the toilet together, everywhere together. The shadow would never leave this side while the person was detoxing from drugs. Hebrews tells us, in your fight with sin, in my fight with sin, Jesus is your shadow. 
in your battle with sin, in the midst of suffering, I wonder, have you started to drift? Have you started to grow weary? Have you started to weaken? Have you started to harden? Does the idea that Jesus up there on that throne feel like he's about 10,000 million miles away compared to where you are battling right down here? Hebrews says, yes, it's hard. You recognize it is hard. For why? Because we don't see Jesus ruling yet. We can't see it. We have to believe it by faith. But what do we see? We see Jesus and the word about Jesus. We see his suffering to make us a part of God's family. We see now, because of what Jesus has done, that we call God our Father, and that Father embraces us. We see that Jesus is now a brother, and he's not ashamed of us. We see Jesus, the author of our faith, the high priest, the sacrifice, the one who helps you by setting you free from the fear of death and judgment so that you might know in your temptation is your shadow. So here's what Hebrews T teaches, simply this. The God up there came down here. The God up there came down here that he might be with you. As I look at you tonight, if I'm honest, I have no idea the suffering you're going through. I don't know what's up to you in your life and I have no idea of the temptation you are struggling with. But God does. Your father does. He knows exactly what you're going through. I know sometimes when we're going through sin we can start to think to ourselves he doesn't see. He's not in the room so how can he see? But he sees. And sometimes as a consequence of thinking he sees, uh, he can't see. We, we, we don't want him to see, so we start thinking, oh, he's just judge out there, and if I keep him at arm's length, then I don't have to deal with him. But he is the Father who sees, and he's the Father who wants to embrace you. He wants you to confess it to him. He wants you to step out of shame and come to him and confess it to him, knowing his loving embrace. And so tonight, that, that's what I want to put to you. Maybe for some of you, it's your first time. First time you said that, God, I don't want to be the king of my own world anymore. I want to trust in what Jesus has done for you. I want to confess my sin to you and have your loving embrace. Maybe it's the first time for you ever. If it is, that's so exciting. Because it means tonight the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see how much God loves you and he wants to know you. But if it isn't your first time, tonight is the time for you to start confessing your sin. Friends, we don't need to hide from this God. We don't need to hide. So I'm going to give you a minute now and I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God yourself. I don't know where you're up to, I don't know where your heart is up to, but you do. He knows. So I'm going to give you a moment of silence just to talk to God and then the band is going to, then I'll pray and the band's going to come up and we're going to sing a song together.
God, it's scary to think that you see all of our sin. You see our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our motivations. And you're not a God who's a judge who hates us for it. But you're a loving Father who wants, longs to embrace us. And so, Father, for each one of us here tonight, I pray that each one of us would know that deeply and come to you and pour out confession to you for whatever's going on in our lives, whatever secret sin we've got stuffed away. Help us bring it to you, knowing your embrace, knowing your love. Knowing that you, in the midst of our temptation, are right there with us through your son Jesus, that he is our shadow, helping us to not have fear of death and judgment, but liberating us to live as your children. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a song called Come to the Altar. Don't get concerned by the word altar.